This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. All right, everybody, you are listening to another episode of the Chasing Tales Outdoor Podcast. You're listening to two Florida crackers getting ready and geared up for deer season, and we bring you stories, tips, tricks, all kinds of cool stuff on this podcast on a weekly basis. And, uh, dude, we sit a couple weeks away from the start of deer season. We've said that every week for a couple weeks now. I am officially nine days away. <laughs> yeah, man, that's awesome. You're going to be getting out in the woods. Uh, I believe it's about two weeks before me, somewhere around yeah, that area. Darn. Well, I think I'm about 20-ish <laughs> days away. Yeah. Um, 22, 23 maybe days away from deer season, so but it's going to be great, dude. I'm I'm glad you're going to be able to get out there and get after it. Yeah. Well, the the funny thing is last year was the opposite for us. And for anybody who's been with us this whole time, last year Chase got the jump start. My my zone in Florida starts um, you know, after his by almost a month. Well, this year I bought that non-resident Georgia tag. In fact, today I got my little commemorative $5 piece of plastic that says, congratulations, you can hunt Georgia. And uh, that that gets me ahead of you by a couple weeks. And uh, take that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you get to get out there before me. Yeah, uh, yeah. After last season, uh, you might need it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I just oh, throw that in man. there for Adam Miller and some of those other guys that are all, <laughs> always saying that. Adrian, Adam Miller, Parker McDonald, all the guys that like to to rib it. It's oh yeah. If you're just if this is your first time listening, it's not actually a competition between me and Chase. Just want to put that out there because no. our downloads have been growing a lot, and I don't want think people people to think that you know <laughs> you and I are after each other. <laughs> No, no doubt, dude. I, I look forward to your success, man. Every time you go out, I'm hoping to get a text that uh, you just got something. So yeah, you know, it has nothing to do with competition. We're we're not even in the same area, so it's no. really not even applicable for that. So uh, we just have a good time back and forth with each other, and uh, I'm looking forward to that uh, text. 
in about what'd you say eight days nine days that you got yep a little over nine days to that text man bbd (laughs) dude I, i can tell you this much the freezer's getting a little empty and uh it's time it's time to fill her up my goal this year mission is to fill the freezer with enough wild meat that i don't have to buy protein i'm still probably going to buy my steaks because i like them but my goal is to put enough there that way if you know there's an apocalypse i've got enough to eat yeah man that's a great goal Oh, man. Well, this week's episode is a humdinger. I'm really excited about this one. Uh, Bill Thompson from Spartan Forge jumps on. And this may be, I mean, it has to be. It just has to be the most complex, precision, deer predictive tool that has ever been created. I mean, to hear this guy go into all the data that he went into doing and the precision in which he's he's built these models on is just you can hear the years of effort. Yeah, man, he threw out a lot of words that are probably are definitely over my head, but I think he did. <laughs> We're not qualified to repeat. A great job <laughs> of explaining it for uh, every hunter that is going to be able to yeah. to use what uh, he's got coming out. Yeah, yeah, it it's 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 really exciting. I think um there are two groups of people that this is really going to improve their game. The guy who is trying to figure it out and is frustrated, maybe a new hunter, maybe a guy halfway through the journey trying to retool. And then I think the guy who really wants to be honest with himself and admit that he could learn things, right? I think this is going to be one of those things that can challenge you and challenge the way you see the patterns that you've witnessed. Um, and I think it's a great tool. It's an excellent tool for people like Chris, one of our Patreon members, who is trying to figure out the deer woods. I can see this being one of those things where he can optimize his available time to get into the woods. Yeah, we mentioned that in the podcast, and that's kind of what Bill mentioned, is how it would be a great tool for uh, new hunters, and even it's going to be even a good tool for super experienced hunters to kind of maybe check themselves and to maybe some of the pre-perceived uh, things that they have about deer hunting to be able to look at that and go, okay, maybe I've been looking at some of this the wrong way and maybe change some things up and even have more success. Right. Yeah, for sure. Well, this is a very long episode, so I'm going to cut myself exceptionally short today, but we do have to announce that we are sitting at one month away. If you guys haven't already entered, and all Patreon members who are already subscribed, you guys are entered. This is for new and existing Patreon members. We are still giving away. There's still a month you can get in on the Timber Ninja C1 Carbon Fiber Tree Stick Giveaway. This is this is a really cool deal that we're doing. We've teamed up with Timber Ninja to provide this to you, and we do four giveaways a year to say thanks to the people who financially help us with the show. And if you don't know about Patreon, Patreon, I should say, it's just that. It's a way that you can kick some money into the production costs of this podcast. We don't make any money on it. It all goes into uh, giveaways and the operating costs to allow us to travel and to record. Chase is getting recording uh, equipment for video this year. So if that's something that would be interested to you or interesting to you and you'd like to, you know, four shots at a bunch of gear every year, 
consider joining Patreon. We'd love to have you, and we've got a great little Marco Polo group um, that is is growing every week, and uh, it's it's an awesome awesome little community that we've built to to help everybody in, enjoy the great outdoors. Yeah, I love our Patreon group. Uh, I mean, it's a daily interaction <laughs> with yeah. a bunch of those guys. And we're always going back and forth. And it's basically a little community that we've kind of developed to be able to help each other out as much as we can. And people are constantly asking questions. And there's even people that give answers that you and I don't know the answers to. So it's a great tool uh, for us to be able to communicate with some of our listeners, maybe uh, get some of their concerns or things they want uh, to hear about on the podcast to be able to uh, deliver to what the people want to hear. Yeah, absolutely, man. Well, let's get them onto the show. This is a long one, an hour and a half. Adam Miller should be excited. He always really enjoys the ones where we we let it go past an hour. So, buddy, this one's for you, and I hope everybody enjoys this episode. What's up, everybody? I am on the phone with a dude who has got something that I guarantee you, you haven't heard of before. Well, maybe not in this way. I think everybody's familiar with what he's doing, but no one's done it on this scale in this way. I'm really excited to say that I'm on the phone with Bill Thompson. Dude, thank you for taking time out of your evening. And, and are you getting as excited for deer season as we are? I can't wait. I'm, I'm literally chomping at the bit and uh, checking you know states around me to see if there's any earlier open openers than the ones in Maryland and West Virginia, because I'm itching so bad to get out there. <laughs> I don't mind the mosquitoes. So for me, it's I, I like hunting early season, so the earlier the better because they're not, you know, we haven't scared them all off yet. So I like early season. I love it. Yeah. Can't wait. If 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 you're if you have an issue with mosquitoes, you definitely don't need to come to the to the deep south because I run my thermosel every staking hunt until about January. So yep. Yeah. It's yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I can imagine. But yeah, I can't wait. How about you guys? Dude, I'm sitting at like nine, just over nine days till I get to uh, chase whitetails. So I'm, I'm amped, dude. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I think I'm around 20 days before I get started. So been scouting and I'm raring, ready to go. That's it, man. That's awesome. it. So, Bill, you and I have talked extensively. Um, Chase is kind of hearing some of this for the first time. He's, you know, he's he. We've brought him up to speed. He's he's heard some of your of your stuff, but. Um, I'm going to admit something to you. And I said, I, I almost went down this path when, uh, before we hit record and I wanted to wait and say this on the air. So, you know, I was serious, but I was a skeptic of what we're about to talk today. When Adam Miller reached out and said, dude, I've got this guy. You need to talk to him. Adam's never led me astray, but I thought mm, he's finally, he's finally, you know, he, he's lost it. But, uh, dude, through talking to you, I, I've got to say that what we're going to discuss tonight might be the coolest addition to the whitetail woods since maybe on X maps. Oh, wow. Well, that, I really appreciate that. That's high praise right there. Um, Onyx is a great company. Yeah. And, uh, I'm, I'm a user myself. I also use base map for other things, but I actually use like about five or six apps, but Onyx is right up there and uh, I appreciate that praise. Absolutely. Um, man. Yeah. That's great to hear. Yeah. It, it's cool. I think, I think I just want to start the precursor on this and, and, and to say to everybody, what we're about to discuss is very revolutionary. It's it, it's it's different. Um, I think it's going to be fun, and I think that it's going to kind of change, especially if you're a new deer hunter or you're the dude that just 
really struggles to put pieces together or or you're you know you're you're in that 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 learning stage i think this is going to be a tool that you're really going to appreciate uh bill why don't you kind of tell everybody what you've been working on uh the past i don't i think you said 10 years yeah so it, for me it started about 10 years ago i, I could preface it all by saying uh, what I'm doing with these apps, I've been doing in the military for 20 years. And uh, that's kind of what got me into it was, you know, numerous tours to Iraq, numerous tours to Afghanistan. A lot of guys don't even know it, but we were at war in the southern Philippines for a while. I did a couple deployments out there. And uh, the U.S. military is always trying to answer the question of where is the enemy now and where will the enemy be? And then where should we interdict to get after these guys? And, uh, you know, do harm to those who would do the Americans harm before they can, if that makes sense. So uh, being an intelligence professional in the military, uh, we were always trying to come up with the most efficient and technologically useful ways to answer those questions. And what we got into the military a few years ago was basically it's a big word and I'll explain exactly what it means, but it's big data amelioration. And what that means is amelioration is basically just taking something and making it better. So there's all of this data out there <clears throat> that might seem like it's not related to whitetails or it might not seem like it, it, there are things that would help you as a hunter. But there's you know terabytes and terabytes or petaflops of this data out there. <clears throat> and in the military, we started making sense of this data you know, about 10 years ago, I'd say, is when the U.S. military really started taking it seriously or putting a lot of money behind it. And I was kind of on the ground floor with that. And it, it basically was take all of this information that's out there, all of it, that's publicly available and legal for the U.S. government to use, and then <clears throat> teach a machine to ingest all of this information and draw meaningful patterns from it and then project those patterns uh, temporally or across time in the future. So basically... You could think about it as, you know, you wake up, you go to the gym at 8.30 in the morning or 7.30 in the morning, you come home from the gym, you take a shower, you eat breakfast, you go to work, you're at work from nine to five. And then every day of the week, but Friday, you go to your favorite restaurant and get some fast food on the way home. And then you get home and you go on the internet, you check your email and you, you know, do whatever you do at home. All of those things create digital footprint, especially today. And smart companies now are taking that information that you are projecting out there, you know, with your cell phone or with your email or with your social media, and they're tethering it to advertising. And in the military, we were taking that kind of information overseas, that same stuff, and tethering it to how do we, how do we plan a kinetic operation or a, an operation meant to take out a bad guy? And, and within our intelligence cycle, use all that big data out there. So when I started doing this years ago, growing up and being a whitetail hunter, I, sa I said to myself, there are a lot of similarities here in that we're, genera we're generating information about whitetails all the time, whether it's people posting on social media, you know, a photo of a buck they killed, or they're, 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 they're generating uh, camera pictures from their cameras or bucks that they're seeing on their cameras across properties, whether it's the DNR putting out yearly reports about where the biggest deer are being killed, how many deer are being killed, the success rate of the hunters, the fawn, the number of fawns that are being born each year to each doe that indicates herd health and health of the ground, and GPS, collar GPS studies that whitetail biologists are doing on deer 
for, you know, managing predators. They might, you know, take 30 doe and put the doe out in the field and then find out, you know, how are they interacting with the predator population to all the way to car insurance organizations. And it's, it's useful for them. Companies like USA and State Farm, if you're, you know, with them, they'll put out emails come around the second week of October because they know that's when the majority of two and a half year old bucks are smelling the first estrus does in a herd and are risking, literally risking their lives to, you know, cross a road when they smell one across the road. All of that data is being collected and cataloged and being used for kind of those small things that I talked about, like those little studies or people with their bragging rights online or just awareness and insurance premiums, trying to keep those low and letting people know, hey, here's when you need to be looking out for deer, or these are the roads where the most deer are being hit. So you have a major highway that bisects a state forest. Uh, Insurance companies are keen and they're smart to have that information. So being a military guy, I first started, and it's probably a time for another podcast. I think it's another podcast all on its own. But um, doing engineering in the military, I started building my own sensors to collect this data. And once I was able to, and I've just gleamed over about three years of my life, because I'm going to try to focus on what we're building today. um, We started, I started going out and getting this information from companies that would give it to me and started getting it from uh, downloading, you know, every state's, uh, you know, uh, Quality Deer Management Association and, and other organizations put out state studies as well getting all of that information. So coupling the insurance companies, them, and then reaching out to biologists, uh, whether they're working at the federal state or local level and basically, you know, getting arrangements done where we can get access to that data to at least, um, train. And, and like I said before, ameliorate this data. So all of that is a really long way of saying there's two things that we're doing with this application, the, with this thing we're, we're, we're calling the outfitter. The first, the first thing we're going to do with it is tell people when deer are moving. And that part is done. I think I've seen it, or I've, I've seen it, obviously. I've sent pictures to you. I think you've seen it. If you watched my first podcast I did with the Vitals Live, I demoed the capability on there. Um, and, and that capability is, that outfitter capability presents the user with, in the military, what we call a common operating picture. And the co- point of a common operating picture is to tell is to take all of those sources of data, including the weather, and then putting them on a page that shows the hunter everything they need to know about the area that they're in or that they're going to be in when they do their hunt. So that first part of the product is going to tell you the when. Um, The second part of the product, which is going to be probably with our pro staff in the next month or two, or, or the users that we're using to evaluate our product, tells you where. So taking all of that data, we're able, and I would say about 90% of it now, in the beginning, it was a lot more of an even balance of all of the data sources. Now it's mostly GPS data. So a, bi- a biologist goes out and it and he tags a, a buck with a GPS collar or a doe. What we've done is gone and collected that from everybody who would share it. Uh, if you're a whitetail biologist listening right now, the odds are you've got an email in my inbox that you've either answered or not answered. And it's me asking to talk to you about your dear GPS data. And um, I will say kudos to the guys in the South. I think we've kind of talked about this. People in the South and people up in Canada have been a lot more astute to sharing this information and a lot more adept to sharing the information and willing to have dialogues about it. And then we're able to tell them things about their information. 
And we've gotten a fair amount from the Midwest as well. Uh, not as much from the Mideast or North, Northeast as we'd like. But um, the point of these products, again, is to tell you when deer will be moving and if they're going to be in their pattern or out of their pattern. And that thing is coming out in the beginning of September here. And it's going to be available for people to go online and look at. And it's going to tell you about the property that you're on. It's going to tell you the weather averages. It's going to tell you the predominant winds in that area. It's uh, going to it's going to have just a little map. It's not going to have the functionality of OnX or anything like that. But it'll just be a map that shows you what the live winds are then. Then you'll be able to toggle and look at like the past 14 days, the past month, past month, the past 60 days. And the point there is to show the hunter everything. And then that's the win. That's the win piece. And that's what's coming out in the beginning of September. And mostly what I'll be talking about today, and then maybe for a future podcast, and I can touch on a little bit today, is the where. And that's basically going to be using very high resolution topography data coupled with environmental data, coupled with GPS data to show you how a buck or a doe might traverse a property and the times that they would do it and what they may be doing in those spots. The what they may be doing in those spots might be next year. It just depends. But we're getting there right now, and, and what we've built looks very promising. So that's kind of a rundown of the when and the where uh, product features that we're, we're coming out with here shortly. So the product we're talking about, I did a bad job of this. I meant to say this, is Spartan Forge. That is the culmination of of the company. Right. Yep. And so you're coming out with two different, um, I don't want to say offerings because they really complement each other. You you mentioned the first one that's dropping is Apollo, correct? Yeah. And and that's the win feature. And I I found that as I say, Apollo and Artemis, it's kind of how we track them internally. Um, Apollo uh, being the goddess of the hunt and Artemis being the god of war. Those were the how we were tracking them internally, but it seems to be confusing to people. So now I'm just saying when and where. I mean, they'll still be called that, but I've just been calling them when and where because a lot of people are like, well, I don't remember which one is Artemis and which one is Apollo. And it's like, yeah, we're, we're screwing it up ourselves here. So, um, it's, I'm calling them the when and the where. So basically the first offering, and you're right, they do complement each other. But the first one that's coming out now is a neural network that does very high prediction on when deer will be most active and if they'll be in pattern or out of pattern. Or very abnormal, like just, you know, you're seeing a buck on a camera that you've never seen before. And you're like, why the heck is this happening? There, there are very, there are very, uh, there are scientific reasons for when, why those things happen and when they happen. And we're able to predict them pretty well. So that's the when. And then the where is that second part that you just mentioned there a little bit ago. Um, Artemis. So I, I can see a world where, because I was a part of this, this where you're throwing a bunch of technology at me. And, and I think technophobia is the official term for, you know, having a, a resistance to change with new technology coming on board. Um, yeah, sure. And, and, and one of the things I've always tried to do is work hard not to um, buy into that because it's, it's very easy to just, you know <laughs> – I read a story one time where when the the combustion engine was a thing and the steam engine rather was a thing, there were people writing articles about the fact that you might go so fast that your heart would stop. And so riding right. horses was safer. And, you know, this is, this is just a thing that we do as humans. We're wired. There's a biological imperative to be resistant to huge, you know, changes. And one of the things that I wanted to do before we kind of dive much further into this is kind of maybe talk just briefly about 
areas in which this is already occurring that you might be familiar with. This isn't like iRobot where there's just going to be this, right. you know, omnipresent right. <laughs> yep. person no, out there. Right. This, this is just taking everything that's kind of already been done, but doing it with genuine precision. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so uh, there's a couple of places right now where people are using machine learning and they may not even know it. One of them is Google maps. So, uh, you know, there's an old saying, at least in the technology sector, where if you're getting a product for free, you're the product. <laughs> so so when Google offers you Google Maps on your phone, right, they're offering you that for free because they want to track your location so that they can, they, they can get um, telemetry data or data about what's happening in the world. So if, you're in a, if you are taking the same route to work every morning and you're always hitting traffic at the same spot, that is something that, you know, everybody with a Google map uh, app in their car, that data is being sent off to Google. And then Google can sell historical data to like trucking agencies. It's like when a trucking agency wants to go through a certain town, they can get the quickest way to go through that town with somebody who's bought that information from Google. And that's all being that predictive technology or that ability to recognize where, where patterns of behavior exist in whatever capacity, in this case, a car. Uh, that data gets taken and then projected. And then when somebody, when the clock is important to someone, they can bring up Google maps and they can either see live traffic data, like live, Hey, there's a, you know, there's a, uh, there's a cop sitting on the side of the road here in, in the case of a Waze app, or there's a traffic jam here. And then when you're searching against, you know, future data, then it tells you, Hey, on Tuesday, there's a good chance that there's going to be traffic here because we've seen it you know, 1500 times before. And th that predictive technology leverages machine learning, not only to do to the prediction, but to tag the data that's involved in that prediction. Uh, and no human would be able to do it, or you wouldn't be able to do, you wouldn't be able to do that kind of analysis sitting a person in front of a, a, a machine. Something has to be taught how to do that analysis and then look at those trillions and trillions of data points and then draw meaningful conclusions from it. And that's kind of what artificial intelligence, or it's exactly what artificial intelligence is, is it's pattern recognition. It's just taking tons and tons of sources of data and then normalizing all of that data and then recognizing patterns in it. So really another way, a kind of tongue in cheek way of saying it is this is high order statistics. So people kind of get bent around the axle when they hear, hear the word artificial intelligence. But really what <laughs> we're saying is, is, you know, us as humans are, we're pattern recognition machines. We recognize patterns. And when we don't recognize a pattern, our anxiety goes to the roof. In other words, when you get thrown into a situation where you don't know what's going on, you've got a system in your brain that automatically makes you feel anxious and is telling you, hey, either learn the situation that you're in right now or get out of here because bad things are going to happen. And that's you know where the fight or flight kicks in. You know, All that's programmed into you. And it's the same thing with machine learning is it's taking all of this data, it's doing pattern recognition, and then it's giving you meaningful patterns from that data that you can use. So when people kind of, you know, are, you know, have like a Luddite view or like an anti-technology view towards these things, it's understandable. I mean, I understand it because, you know, there was a long time where I refused to leave the GPS on my phone unless I was using it for something because I didn't know, you know, what was happening out there. So I understand that. But on the opposite end of this is what we're trying to do with this company is we're not using any of our users' data. What we're doing is we're learning as much as we can about a deer, about deer themselves, the species, um, speci specifically the Virginiana species of deer. And we are 
taking all of those patterns and we're making them so that they scale and can be provided to any hunter on any property. So you can, you can kind of compare this to if you had the money, you could go hire somebody to do a property analysis of the area that you hunt, whether it's public or private. And they would tell you, you know, here's, you know, based on my expertise of 30 years of hunting, right? Here's where I would play stands. Here's where I would do hedge cutting. Here's where favorable buck bedding would be. Here's where you are likely to see the does bedding in relation to food if they're not pressured. That analysis is already out there. It's just, it's not scaled. It's not available to everyone. And that's why these guys who do this are charging people, you know, thousands of dollars to do this kind of analysis. And then one of the great things about technology like YouTube is, and unlike this podcast is you guys are able to interview people and then you're able to share that knowledge with everyone about this hunter's experiences. And that would be impossible 50 years ago. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. You guys wouldn't have a podcast 50 years ago. So, I mean, what we are looking at is we're looking at a natural progression in technology and we are doing it in such a way that if you've only got $2.99 as a price point to spend and you want to know more about your property and maybe you just started hunting or you haven't had the time because you have a full-time job like most of us to go off and do scouting every weekend or you've got a family to worry about, you can still go out and you can enjoy the deer woods knowing that you're if you're using our applications, you're getting best practices and you're getting meaningful pattern analysis to help prepare you go into the woods. So that's kind of how, you know, and the difference is you want to pay, you know, a big name in the hunting industry to do it for you and tell you everything, or do you want to spend countless hours listening to YouTube videos of an expert telling you how to do it, or you just want it to happen quickly on your phone. You know, the, the ethic here that I like to preach or the ethic here, I think that is involved is getting as many people having a favorable time in the deer woods as possible and making sure that they're enjoying themselves and that we're growing this community so that we can get more public lands. I'm a public land hunter. Public land hunting is my passion. Um, I think it's one of the most challenging things to do, and it's also one of the most rewarding things to do. So the more people that are doing this and the more people are, success, are successful and the more revenues that's being spent means more people are voting in favor of more public lands. And that's kind of my end game here is I want more and more i want to be a bigger and bigger public land owner if that makes sense and how we do that is we demystify the deer woods for people so that they're successful whether that's putting meat on the table or that's putting you know antlers on the wall whatever size they are well it's interesting to me because um are you familiar with dr bob shepherd by chance uh I, i've heard the name okay so he i would say on a uh, if you guys will permit me to say this on a redneck scale. And the reason why I say this is because uh, he, he, he deemed what he did a scientific approach and it probably was the most scientific approach you could have done at that day and age. But he wrote the book white tales, a scientific approach. And yeah, I've ordered that. Were you the guy you told me to order that book? Cause I ordered that book I, and it's sitting on my stack right now. I feel like maybe we discussed this. Yeah. It, it's, yeah someone told me to order. I have that book. So yeah, now yeah. I know who you're talking about. And, and so he, in the, the heart of the South went and shot and took, you know, shot hundreds and thousands of deer, hundreds and thousands of deer, not hundreds of thousands of deer, but, uh, he, he came up at a point in time where, you know, killing everything that moved was almost encouraged because of, of the population in Alabama. And because of his schedule and his ability to interview hunters, he did this in like a, um, 
I'm just going to say it, a redneck fashion. I mean, the, there's so yep. many different influences going into the data points. Was the guy asleep to half the time? How much was he paying attention? What did his presence in the woods do to the deer movements? He put together perhaps what is the most comprehensive approach to the, to what you're doing until you've done it here. And I think the coolest thing is both of you guys, the majority of your of your data is coming from the South. And yeah, that's what really exactly. excites me. Yeah. And, and, and I would say that probably upwards of 65 to 70 percent of our data that we've implemented, that is that we've used to train our algorithm uh, has come out of the South. We do have quite a bit of Midwest data, too. Sure. Um, and Northeast data. But I mean, really, if I ha- I'll put it this way. If I had to bet on the accuracy, if I had to bet the mortgage on the accuracy of my model, I'd want to do it against an Alabama, Florida, Georgia, or South Carolina deer. Like we, we, we have a ton of data from that area and we have gotten some results that I won't even talk about because they're so good. They make me kind of wonder if they're too good, um, <laughs> on how we do prediction in those areas. Uh, because we started our model that way. And we have great relationships with the academics down there, a, a number of them. And, uh, I think I'd said it to you guys off air, but, you know, people in the South are just have that Southern hospitality, you know, mantra where they're willing to share things because, you know, it's, it's kind of like uh, people who hoard informa- information to retain power or the person who distributes information as much as they can, not for the purposes of power, but they end up achieving it. You know what I'm saying? Right. Right. Like you got those, you, everybody's got that guy at work who will never tell you what he knows is going on because he thinks there's some kind of power in that. And then you've got the other guy who tells everyone everything that's going on. And he ends up being <laughs> the most powerful person at work because he's willing to share everything with everyone. And uh, that I, I, that's really been my experience with guys in the South is, hey, buddy, we did this study six years ago. We haven't been using the data. If you've got a use for the data, here it is. Go, go nuts. Um, and it's so that's why I, you know, First off, you know, I'm a I'm a proxy southern hunter as a result because I feel like I've seen more southern deer and uh, kind of being the white tail nerd that I am. A lot of times I just like to get on or on my computer here and watch how a buck moves around for three months just on like a topographic map. Just here's how this buck's been doing it every day. And here's been the weather. And I can't tell you how many times I've done that with southern deer. And, and even though I've never loosed an arrow in the south, you know, as far south as I've gotten is southern Maryland. Um, I feel like I know those deer down there because of, you know, the interactions that I've had with all these great biologists and all of these great academics that have shared this data with us. And, and, and to that end, we're, we are, a, you know, it is a southern, a very southern model. It does very well in the south. Oh. Well, we need to change that. We need to get you down here and you can uh, come hunt with us sometime <laughs> yeah. so we can. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Um, I got a question for you, Bill. How how does this compare to an app like DeerCast? Because you're kind of saying the win, and I think that they kind of try to do the same thing, but I don't think they're necessarily using data. It's more of, like you mentioned, that person that's got 40 years of experience in the woods or maybe a bunch of them, and they put all these points together that they came up with and just – uh, or barometric pressure, moon phase, all of that stuff. So how, how does yours differ from that? Well, there's a few ways that, that ours that ours differs, right? I mean, we could have taken and done like what we call an expert model or what, what you would call an expert model, which is you basically take the data from a bunch of studies and you say, here are, here's the observational data that we have about deer herds. And, you know, we seem to say, 
that when deer are like this in the south and the weather is like this and it's this time of year, this is what they're going to be doing. And then you build a model out of that. There's a couple of problems with that model. The first problem with that model is a lot of these studies are done with observational data and observational data um, or, or, or yearly measurement data is lacking the full context that you need to understand the animal. The second part to that is it, deer, especially from the, what the data bears out, and I can tell you as a guy who's looked at the data endlessly, it's all I do with my free time, they are regional animals. White-tailed deer are very regional animals. And I guess just one point of contact that maybe everyone knows, but I think it's worth repeating is in the white-tailed rut in North Dakota, 55 degrees will shut movement down. You will not see deer on the hoof during the day in 55-degree weather. Whereas in southern Alabama, you're going to see a spark of movement in the woods because, you know, those, those are considered colder temperatures are down there, and those will get the deer on their feet. Um, that's just kind of a point. So my point in saying that is what gets deer moving in different areas, regardless of temperature, there are a ton of other things that, um, that, that get a vote they're regional. In other words, if our model wasn't regionalized, if we didn't have the Northern data that we have and the Southern data that we had, we wouldn't be able to apply our, if our data was strictly Southern, say we'd never got data from the North. I can tell you with 100% accuracy that the model wouldn't predict well up North. It might do an okay job, but it wouldn't predict well. So when you have a company and I'm not going to say this is who DeerCast is, cause I really haven't looked hard into their app. I've been busy building my own. Um, that is presenting you a solution that's got an algorithm that gets you the same prediction. You know, if you type in a zip code up here or a zip code down there, you're getting the same, the same algorithm is telling you that movement, it's not going to, it's not going to work well. And I haven't, I can't tell you what apps I've tested, but I can tell you that I've tested apps last year during the whitetail rut. I tested apps when I knew I was going to be getting GPS data. So what I was doing was, I was looking at who I thought were going to be my competitors. Now, again, I'm not going to say names, but I was looking at the prediction results that I was getting and I was cataloging them. And then I was looking at the prediction results that my model was giving. And I was cataloging them. And then I would receive the GPS data from the area that I was cataloging, like the zip code from where I was getting the deer data. And I can tell you that some of these models that are out there and some of the expert models you know, you might get, I, I took a couple from a couple of um, like deer and deer hunting magazines where a guy basically said it was like a, a point system, one to 10. Like if pressure's doing this, mark plus one point. If rain's doing this, plus one point. If this is doing this, plus one point. And then you divide it by 10 and you get a number. And then they'd say, be in the woods on these days or don't be in the woods on these days. I took those models and then I took the apps that I had access to out there. And the top performing model that I got based on the actual GPS data. So I was, actually using the zip code when I was using these predictions and I was actually getting deer GPS data of like 35 deer from those zip codes, I actually got to see how they were moving on those days. And the top performing application that I saw was around 25%. So 25% of the time they were predicting and it depended on the amount of buckets. So if you had like a low, medium, high, then obviously 33% would be would be, you know, if you had a three-sided die, it's going to be right 33% of the time, 33.3% of the time. Some of these models had like five bucket models and you would have been better off on some of these apps that are out there flipping a five-sided die because they were less accurate than just what you would get 
you know, on average from rolling a die that's got five sides on it. Say you had a die on it that's a very bad day for movement up to very good day for movement and you rolled it. That thing would have statistically been more right than these things were. Some of the models, it seemed like they were <laughs> trying to be wrong. And I'm not trying to sound flippant. It's just that's what the that's what the data bore out. And if my model had been that way, I would have gone back to board and started my model over. You know what I'm saying? So I guess that's what that is all to say is we have ways of testing these models, and I'm I, I it, it's there. You get GPS data from somewhere, or you ask an academic, and then you catalog the days and you see what the prediction is, and then you look at what the deer actually did. Were they moving a lot on those days or a little on those days? And, and what we've done is we've, we've taken millions and millions and millions of data points and we've trained these machines and they do very good prediction. On our wind model, we're north of 65% right now. And people sometimes ask the question, like, how accurate can you get? And I'm, I don't know, but I would say it's not above 70 or 75%. These are animals. You know what I'm saying? They're unpredictable. There's, there, there's, there's, you know, I've heard people tell me that some of these deer prediction models out there are predicting at 90%. That is, that is incredible. That's, I don't like calling people liars, but there's nothing out there <laughs> that can predict at 90%. I mean, there's just right nothing. Now. We're talking about animals. So, I mean, when you start talking about 65% of the time, I'm able to tell you if movement is low or high, and I'm able to tell you if they're in pattern or out of pattern. I'm not a biologist, but I've talked to biologists, and the ones that I've talked to, and the data scientists that I work with are all pretty sure we're getting near the top hmm. uh, wow. of, of predicting the win. That's okay. nice, man. Predicting the win. I mean, I, I can see that because to look at the data, because you've actually got the data, and some of these other ones are just going off. Maybe someone only likes to hunt cold weather, so they're and they have really good encounters, so they're going to say hunt cold weather and don't hunt hot weather where the deer actually could have been moving on a hot day more, but they're never in the woods on those days to experience that. So that's how I get where the data really comes into play with all this to back up what you're doing. And it showed by you looking at the other apps and uh, these other ways of calculating deer movement that those weren't that accurate. Right. And, and, and the other, the other, I think the other thing that's, you know, worth saying about this is, um, you you hit the nail on the head someone everybody every hunter i don't care who you are you come to the table with bias on any subject in other words you feel a certain way about something based on your own experiences the goal of machine learning and the goal specifically of the company that i've started with my my buddies vaughn and jimmy is to remove human bias and the only way to do that is to build a model that is specifically built on the data and nothing else like I, I can give you a story, a quick little story that kind of I think hits this home for a lot of people or it makes sense. Have you guys heard of Charles Alzheimer? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So great man. I knew him personally. Um, he, he, we had a common friend, a guy named who died um, uh, last year named Craig Doherty, and he was a writer for Outdoor Life. And I used to go up there and we'd hunt on Craig's property in New York. And he had a wonderful property that him and his son Neil put together. And I grew up reading Charlie Alzheimer books. Like I picked my first one up. It was called, I believe it was called White Tales on the Moon. And I read that when I was an 11 year old uh, that I just picked it up for like three bucks at like a garage sale. And I think I read that book 25 times. And the point of that book was there's a running moon that happens at the autumn equinox. 
And depending on when the rutting moon is, it's going to impact your highest amount of movement day. Like that, you know, you could go basically go to one of Charlie's books. And I think in some of his books, he runs it out to like 2060 or something like that. Like he'll tell you the, the biggest day of movement. Believe me when I say I would want nothing more than to validate this man who I admired so much and spent a lot of time on the phone with and a lot of time in person. I'm friends with his son now. Um, in fact, I traveled out to his mom's property last year to deliver after Charlie passed. I delivered a flag that we'd flown during a combat mission in Afghanistan in memory of Charlie. And I went out there and delivered it to his uh, Charlie's wife and, and, and his son. And uh, there would be nothing more that I would want than to validate the model of his that I used for so many years. And that was the lunar model. Now, lunar, uh, lunar activity does impact movement, but it doesn't impact, I don't think, I'm not a biologist, but I don't think it impacts movement how most people think it does. And I can talk about that later. But my point is, I want nothing more than to validate my personal hero's model, like the, the guy I looked up to growing up. I can't get the data to do it. The data doesn't do it. No, oh, no. And I tell that story <laughs> to say, I tell that story to say is, I don't come to the table with a misconception, a pre-misconception or a presupposition about what deer do. My model only tells you what the deer have actually done and how they do it. Does, right. does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense because you got to think about a state like Florida where we have ruts all over the map. <laughs> I mean, even like from almost across the street where deer are rutting at different times and doesn't seem like there's any correlation with the moon for those. So I, I always, I kind of would, I watched the same thing or maybe some of the YouTube videos he had on that, or maybe just found it on the internet. And I was, I was like, I don't know how that really applies to where I'm at just because of the differences in uh, at least what I'm observing, which could have just been based on bias, but it's good to have, the data that you can really go back to and go, okay, this is actually how it is. Yeah. And I mean, I'll, t I will give you guys, I don't like to talk a ton about how the model predicts because I don't want to give away the secret sauce, but, <laughs> right. but for Southerners specifically white tailed hunters, there are two points of contact here that I can talk about that are really interesting about the data. Um, the first thing is if I live in the South, I'm hunting during periods of like medium rain to drizzle some of the highest periods of movement are during periods of rain. And I don't know if people talk about this or if this is well known in the South or not. It was not well known to me and it was not well known to other, hmm. with the exception of one biologist, it was not known to these other biologists, but the demo, the data bears it out. If it's a, if it's like a drizzle to a medium rain, not like, you know, Forrest Gump rain where it's coming from the bottom and hitting you in the face. They, that will slow them down. But when it's like a healthy medium rain to a drizzle, deer are moving. And if I was a hunter in the south, I would be hunting all the time when it's a medium rain outside. <laughs> and, and the data bears that out. And then the second right. point, the second point with that, what I think is really interesting is when you, you talked about ruts before, one of the things that we I, I pride myself on, and maybe I shouldn't because it sound, makes me sound like a psycho, is I went and individually researched and published a rutting date for every county and some counties have four to five as you just talked about across the u.s any county with whitetails in the u.s our app will tell you peak breeding and when and when movement starts on the bell curve and it's predictable it's every year every year that whitetail biologists pull fawns and measure them you know uh, in utero you know they kill mm -hmm. someone harvests the fawn and then they 
or I'm sorry, a doe, and then they measure the fawn, <laughs> they get peak conception rates out of that. And it's a consistent bell curve that gets re 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 every year. What we've done for our common operating picture is, with the exception of a few counties in Texas, and I think a couple of counties in Michigan, I, I, we were able to find data for every county in the U.S. And wow. you are absolutely right about, you know, four or five, I think some places have seven ruts in one county. <laughs> and you're able to see it, you know, as we map these things out, you're able to see it. And what's interesting about it is a lot of it seems to be correlated with the amounts of rain, flooding season, and then how well the area drains. So that's kind of an interesting fact. In other words, if if you're in an area where it floods a lot, that will affect – in other words, if you're living in a county where there's good drainage to the south, and you guys know what I'm talking about being in Florida, where – if there's a ton of rain, you're flooded in the south, but in the north part of the county, even if there's a ton of rain, there's there's good drainage and it doesn't flood, that gets a vote on whitetail rut. And that is because um, the fawns need to be born during during the part of the season where there won't be a flood that will kill all of the fawns and there won't be fawns the next year. So the does come into heat. That is part of the calculus, as I understand it from talking to whitetail biologists about this, as to why uh, rutting can differ so much across across the county like you said across the street there's running on this state and then you know the other side of the street there's running on this state um that has to do with the does just like in the north the does need to come into heat at the best top point in time where fawn survivability is at its max and that's why you get all of this spectrum across one county and it's super interesting and it wasn't something that i discovered until i researched the running dates you know all across the u.s and you're absolutely right. Florida, South Carolina, Texas, Georgia, um, parts of North Carolina. It's just crazy. First, how the rut is affected by A, rain, and then B, drainage. But then C, how the herds were stocked from northern areas also affects the rut. So there's all of these things where if somebody hasn't gone out and compiled all of this data, it can get very confusing about why my buddy down the road is seeing running activity now for the past three days. And I've seen none. Right. And, and it's only when you understand how it, your area might be impacted by flooding, by temperature or by um, regional rut statistics, then it starts to make sense. Yeah. Uh, Walter and I, we've had this discussion before on the podcast and you basically just answered <laughs> uh, our questions or thoughts or something or stuff we've kind of gone back and forth on just trying to figure out. And I think that was our answer, Walt. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'm sitting here right now looking for uh, some new rain gear. So, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, And it's it's a, it's 100 percent true. And then there have been studies published on this. Um, out of the South and, you know, after the podcast, I can link you guys up with those. You know, I think I actually owe Adam that study too. I think he had asked for that and I told him I'd send it and I'll, I got to get that out there. But yeah, there's great, great studies on that, on this data that we're talking about. And it's, it certainly is. If I lived in the South during a light rain, man, I'd be in the field. It, it yeah. just, it, it's one of those things where it goes, it goes against what you know about whitetails, right? Because you think to yourself, yeah. rain flushes scent away. So if I'm an animal that depends on scent, negotiating the terrain of the deer woods when it's raining outside, it would put me at a disadvantage. So it kind of goes against your, you know, like everything else in life. It's like when you figure out it, when you actually figure something out, it seems to me it's almost always the opposite of what you thought it was. 
if that makes sense. Like yeah. a lot of times in well, my life, at least. And we we've talked about this. I think I actually I'm pretty sure we we talked about this when we spoke on the phone because we talked about you know an animal's you know or at least a whitetail's key senses of defense: hearing, smell. Um, being uh, your, your your two you know first and foremost, obviously they can see movement pretty well. But if you think about what a, a good steady rain does, it's going to make the woods quieter. It also creates a, a static noise to the background, right? It's harder to hear something moving through, and yeah. uh, in a lot of ways, it 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 changes. It doesn't really get get rid of their ability to smell, but it definitely changes how they smell things. So for them to get up and start moving. It almost baffles me. I mean, the only thing I can attribute that to maybe is the desire to uh, be on the move such that you aren't, you know, sitting in one place to be found. Maybe. I I, I don't know. So the two things I've thought about, and obviously I'm not a biologist, and these are – I have had, you know, sessions – I've got one once a month where I I figure something out in the data or my guys that I work with figure something out in the data, and it doesn't make sense. So then we go and talk to someone about it. And two of the ideas that I've cooked up with a biologist that I talk to all the time, his name is Steve Ditchkoff from Auburn. Um, two things that we, I, we've kind of batted around or I've asked him about, which seems to be the case is um, predators also rely on scent. So if you if there are predators you know, that are going after an animal somewhere, scent is also maybe getting drowned out for them. Mm. But also um, the 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 way that they are being pursued by people in the South may impact when they feel safest. In other words, if every hunter in the South is under the false, the false narrative that rain slows movement down, mm-hmm. then a deer is conditioned after years and years and years. And the, the does and the does, you know, they're in the military, we call them NCOs, non-commissioned officers. The does are like the non-commissioned officers <laughs> of the deer herd. They're training everybody, including the baby bucks. You know, you'll see like a fawn in the in a field do something stupid, then a then a doe gets on her, right? Mm-hmm. Puts her in line and says, "This is you know, basically training them up." Well, if you've got years and years of does who have figured out that nobody hunts, there are no our only predator in the south there, right? Or one of the bigger predators, I shouldn't say only, which is humans don't seem to hunt during the rain. They don't know that. They just know that they don't encounter predators. So if you, we've been doing this for 25 years, it stands to reason that they are going to start moving more during the rain because they feel safer, safer in the rain. There, there are also studies out there. I'm trying to remember where I read this. But basically, it, um, if you put pressure on deer only at night, they'll start moving more towards the day, during the day. They'll become less crispuscular. In mm. other words, if you are just blowing out deer beds in the middle of the night like some wild man with a flashlight, for whatever reason, <laughs> hopefully you're not poaching. But if you do that year after year after year, bucks will start moving more towards the day during the day. Interesting. Just because we're, we're conditioning them like a dog. It's like, if you, if you, if you, if you are trying to train your dog and you, and you don't punish it when it like jumps up on the couch and it takes a chunk out of your couch cushion, um, it'll keep doing it until you tell it that that's a behavior that's not desirable or you train it positively by reinforcing behavior, it's going to keep doing whatever it seems to think is going to lead to a positive result. There's no reason to think why it's not the same case for a white-tailed animal or white-tailed deer. Um, so again, everything that I just said is just speculation. I have nothing to back this up. All I know is, it, what I can say 100% is that in the South, 
when there's light rain to moderate rain, they're moving. Mm. And people should not discount that. If they're serious whitetail hunters, they should get out in the rain. So, right. oh, go ahead, Jace. No, I was just saying that makes sense. I mean, I've seen that myself hunting in the woods. I'll go out and hunt a light rain uh, just because I've seen deer in those conditions. Uh, and then I've, I've seen them in, like I said, the, the moderate rain as well. But it does seem like they're more on edge a little bit to me, but that's just from my experience. Like they're, they're kind of a little more jumpy, but they're still out moving. It's not that they're not out moving. It's just that they're kind of like looking all over the place. And like I said, you've got different noises uh, of the rain hitting leaves and palmettos that we have and stuff down here, but they're still out moving. It hadn't, it didn't, doesn't stop them from moving, but it does seem like they're a little more on edge to me, but uh, your data wouldn't be able to show that. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't be able to show edginess. Um, you know, the other interesting thing too, and I actually, I was talking to, we, I mentioned it to the call, but I was talking to, before the call, I mentioned this, I was talking to Garrett Prawl and, um, you know, I've got a, I've got a German short haired pointer that I've trained to, um, to get shed antlers and he's awesome. I mean, he does a great job at fetching shed antler. And I can take him out onto public land and he'll find, you know, three or four sets in, in a one day period. And um, he does it just as well when it's raining or right after it's rained as he does right before it's rained. And the point that Garrett had brought up was he had seen some studies on dogs where they actually do worse on scent tracking when it's extremely dry outside. Which you would, a guy would almost think is the opposite case. But it seems like when there's a little bit of moisture in the air, the scent carries better. So when it's super dry, it's almost harder for the dog to get on point and find whatever it's looking for. And, you know, based on what I have read about white-tailed deer is that their olfactory or their sensing, their smelling capacity is, I think, something like 30% better than a dog's. Now, don't quote me on the numbers because I don't know them, but I want to say it's something like a dog's got like eight, 80 million of these um, sensors in their nose and a whitetail's got something like 130 million or something like that. So it stands to reason that a white-tailed deer has a better smelling ability than a, than a dog does. And what I've seen my dog do with shed antlers in all weather conditions and wind conditions makes me think that uh, they're not at that much of a disadvantage when they're on their foot, on their feet in the rain. Right. Well, I mean, Maybe some of it, but not a ton. Are, are you a fan of Robert Rourke? Uh, I'm sorry. Say again. Are you a fan of the author, Robert Rourke? No, I'm sorry to say, I don't know who that is. <laughs> it's, he wrote the old man and the boy. Um, and okay. it, it, one of the, their favorite pastimes, uh, was quail hunting. And when it was raining and it was a day to go quail hunting, that they jumped on the opportunity because the birds they believe could they could, the 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 men thought that the birds could you know ground scent those uh, quail much more easily if if it was a light rain so I mean I think that kind of you know validates a lot of of what you're saying there but I, I've got a question for you sure go for it you said that they actually let me back up I have a a, a running opinion a very unqualified opinion, but this is just my, my stance on, on a whitetail's ability to critically think. I don't necessarily know that a whitetail has the ability to, to, you know, look at a, at a scenario and critically think its way through the process. I think it's a lot of inputs and outputs. It hits a certain, you know, it lands on a matrix and then based on how it lands on that matrix, the whitetail makes a decision. 
Yeah, I, I wouldn't even know if they. I wouldn't even know if I'd use the word makes a decision. Right, right. Just reacts right. or, or it's like or, instinctual. Right, that just happens. Kind of like when someone throws a baseball at you. Right, and you don't know, but then you grab it and catch it before you even know it's happening. Exactly. There's like, no conscious just, thought there. It's right. just reactionary. It just it, right. It, it sounds like what you're saying by the the conditioning of these animals that they are very eerily close to machine learning themselves. That they take inputs, they take outputs, and they just react accordingly. Yeah, and I, and I, I kind of mentioned it earlier, but I mean, in nature, almost every well, I, I, I should say, from my studies, any animal or any system that involves intelligence, it's all based on pattern recognition. Everything we do is pattern recognition. We recognize a pattern, whether it's how colors are aligned, how shapes are aligned, um, how situations play out, how we construct our environments, how we negotiate our environment. It's all based on pattern prediction. I know that if I either see this thing and that's arranged in this way, I'll make this decision. Or if a situation presents itself in this way, I recognize that pattern. And then I make the decision based on what's worked for me the best in the past. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's all patterns, especially for animals that, you know, to my knowledge, don't have consciousness. You know, I don't think there's anyone out there trying to say white-tailed deer have consciousness. But that's kind of what separates us from them is that we're able to think about these things and rationalize and make conscious decisions. Right. And I guess that's kind of the, you know, that's where you get from an artificial intelligence system, which is just doing pattern recognition to, you know, what people really could worry about, which is like sentient beings, which is, you know, we're nowhere <laughs> near that. You know, the more and more I spend time in the artificial intelligence realm, the more laughable it becomes to me when someone says, oh, we're going to have robots that are like humans in like five years. It's like, to me, and maybe it's just because I'm neurotic by nature, or you know, I, I look at things very critically. I'm a half, I'm a glasses half, you know, empty type of guy. The more and more time I spend here, the harder and harder that problem seems to me, and the less likely that it seems to me. I'm not saying it's not going to happen, and I could be wrong. In 20 years, there could be, you know, you know, I robot type of situation playing out, <laughs> but I think it's highly unlikely, highly improbable. Um, but that, that's just my own two cents because really what this is, is high level statistics. I think that's what this is. I could, once again, I could be wrong. I'm not the expert on these things. You know, the two guys that I work with, Vaughn and Jamie and the company, they're much better than I am at this. Uh, even though I've done this work, um, it seems to me like it's off a ways before we start talking about those types of things. So the second offering to this is the, the complicated one that, uh, I struggled to wrap my head around how it applied to the South. And I'm sure you've got an uphill climb here um, with Artemis, which is the where component to this. Um, How do you, without obviously giving away the secret sauce, how do you envision that um, being utilized by the whitetail hunter? Yeah. So there's Artemis or the where portion has two kind of stages to it. The first stage is, a hunter is going to be, I'll first tell you how the hunter will use it. And then I'll kind of explain how it'll work. So what a hunter will do is he or she will select a property that they intend on hunting. And then what we do know right now, and I can say with certainty is there are patterns in how bucks and does choose bedding areas. And those patterns are heavily relied upon those patterns and the, and the calculations and the equations that they use unconsciously, as we talked about, heavily rely on topography and temperature, wind direction, basically all the environmental weather gets a vote. But it seems to me that weather, 
as it relates to when gets the biggest vote, but they choose their betting areas based on that. So, so a hunter will select a piece of property and then Artemis will say, you know, if your mission is to scout, here's areas on this property that you should be scouting. And then we need inputs from you. So you're going to drop some, uh, um, you're going to drop some icons on the map and say, you know, I found scraping in this area that Artemis recommended or Artemis didn't recommend this area and they're scraping in this area. So then that'll be a point for the machine to learn and say, oh, I, I, I made a prediction that wasn't quite right. So it can also learn from what your inputs are. But it'll highlight that property and say, here's where we suspect the betting is. Here's where we, here's where we suspect um, uh, transition. In other words, here's where one bit of vegetation buffers against another bit of vegetation. And you should look at that. And then here are the terrain choke points on here, whether it's high, a high ground choke point or uh, low ground in a swamp or it's uh, uh, an area that's conducive to bedding. All of these things are things that you can train a machine. We are training a machine to recognize. And uh, so when the hunter, you know, first this year, I think what our guys will be getting on our pro staff is basically here are good places to scout. And here is where we think the bedding and choke points are on this particular property. And it'll just highlight those things for you. It'll just basically give you an area to investigate again, no different, no, again, no different than if you were to send off a map to like, I don't know, uh, uh, a Michael Waddell or someone like that and say, Hey, where do you think the good deer are on this property? And he'll say, you know, I think you should hunt here, 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 same thing. Um, it's going to say, here are the interesting points. And based on how this machine has seen millions and millions of deer data points and hundreds of thousands of data points related to betting and how deer have chosen betting, it can make an educated guess about where betting may be on this property and then how they, based on the wind, how they may enter or exit that betting. So those are the things that we are, we are going to be field testing this year. And then we look to release that in its full capacity next year. Interesting. That'll be, that'll, that'll be something I, I'm really going to, so much, so much of our area is so homogenous. You know, you and I have talked about this on the phone. Everything here is just one big monoculture. It's not obviously, but it feels that way. And, and I'm interested to see how this adapts because if it's, you know, grabbing certain, you know, uh, terrain features or something like that in Florida, those are going to be pretty rare and it's going to re- direct a bunch of people to them. It's going to have to re- react. And I'm interested to see how it reacts when that pressure all gets funneled in an area. How does it adapt? I mean, Chase, what do you think down there where you're at? What, do you think there's a, an abundance of locations it would recommend, or do you think it's kind of similar to up here for me? Uh, I think it probably would recommend a decent amount of areas for for hunters but like you mentioned what if there does it know about pressure in those areas that's would be the one of the things that i would kind of like to know is how does it input pressure into the thing because it obviously there be there will be people who won't be using it so they won't be knowing that there's people in those areas but i think it's what it's trying to do is it's recommending people areas to check out um yes so the pressure piece is a separate piece but it is something we're working on. In fact, we were just on a, uh, I think a two and a half hour phone call yesterday morning about the pressure piece. And we know we can lick that problem. That's a problem that we can get after. And there's two ways that we're going to do it. 
And one of them, one of the ways that I won't tell you how, but I will tell you what it will do. The way we're looking at doing this, it's also very similar in the military. We call this blue force tracker. Um, and it's basically uh, understanding where people are on the battlefield and then deconflicting that for somebody who's trying to negotiate that battlefield. But then we're going to take that a step further by understanding, okay, when we have that data, then how do we know that how the general hunter approaches a piece of public land? So kind of the first piece is here's, you know, humans like deer are patterns or work on patterns. So when a human, the general human looks at a hunting property and wants to hunt it, there are of course the crazy guys who are, you know, out there with climbing gear and are scaling the side of a ridge to get up on a bed that they think is somewhere. Um, or they're going to go crazy and get into a swamp that's, you know, waist deep. Those guys are the exception. Even today, as more people are doing those types of things, but there are, there are, there are the patterns that the general hunter follows. And that is, you know, walk no farther than a half mile, get on a tree in an area that looks nice and then get as far up in that tree as you can. And then, and then, you know, like I did wonder why you're not seeing deer, you know, <laughs> back when I first started public land hunting, it was that exact scenario for me. When I moved to the East coast, I was used to hunting out in the Midwest and I would get on these public hunting properties and I'd be setting myself up in like what I call the pretty woods. And you don't see deer in the pretty woods, not during daylight hours. Uh, <laughs> you need to get into where people aren't willing to go. Cause once again, we've conditioned, you know, animals to retreat. We and predators have conditioned animals to retreat to areas where people aren't willing to go. So I guess that the first part there is we want to get into having a machine that now understands the general deer, which we've done. We wanted to understand the general hunter. And then you can kind of game those things against each other and figure out what's the delta, what's the difference between these two things. Mm. What parts of the land is the general hunter not hitting and what parts of the land are the general deer hitting? And then how do we illustrate that to a hunter? So we think we can lick that problem. In fact, I know we can. We're going to start here pretty soon. And then the second part to that is the blue force tracking part, which is not an area that I necessarily want to get into. But at some point, if this is successful, we will have to get into it. And that's basically going to be managing how people negotiate properties and where they're setting stands up. And then maybe to a higher tier of user, you'll, you are allowing them to understand the parts of a public property that aren't being hit. And invariably, no matter where they are, if you've got an area that doesn't have, hip, doesn't have human scent on it, there's going to be deer there. So if you have a piece of public property where there's a swamp and there's a hillside, and then there's some flatland and nobody's been hunting the flatland because they think all of the deer are on the hillsides and in the swamp. I guarantee you after three or four years of that scenario playing out, there's going to be a big buck in that area that you don't think there would be one because there's no human scent there. So that's kind of the tightrope that we're going to walk and that we are going to get there. But for now, our products aren't going to account for pressure, but they will in the future. Hmm. I'm, I'm fascinated, man. I think this is going to be, um, I think I think this is going to be an interesting thing to to see unfold. I think it could really upset people it, it, by challenging their notions of what they think about the whitetail woods. How do you how do you plan to mm, weed out people who provide you data points that say, "Oh well, you, the thing said to go here. I went there. I didn't see Jack." In in all reality, right. that dude was asleep <laughs> or yeah, on mean, his phone. I mean. Right, exactly. Um, and that is a big problem. But I mean, 
the first, I guess the first part is, is to tell them a story about how this thing destroyed all my presuppositions, you know, using those, I talked about those lunar tables before, and there, there is a way that lunar activity gets a vote on deer movement. One of the ways is if it's a super bright night during a full moon, um, you may see some movement into the morning or you may, the, the transition from sun, from moonlight to sunlight is less apparent and you may see some more deer in the morning but it's going to generally shut down movement, uh, especially for that afternoon because they've been feeder, feeding longer into the into the morning. Um, so, as a as a bright day, as a bright night occurs, there are two scenarios that play out, and it's regional again, and it's not something I want to get super deep into. <laughs> but um, certain scenarios play out where you can see more movement during a full moon, and you can see less movement during a full moon. Um, and I was talking with Garrett about this yesterday, again, just the same thing. And um, th- there are scenarios that play out near him where there is less movement in the morning. Um, and and in the south, there are certain scenarios that play out that I've seen where there's more movement in the morning. We think we are nailing down why this phenomenon takes place, but we're not sure. We do know that the phenomenon takes place. But there is, a again, what I'm telling you is the data bears out there are some differences and, and we're trying to pin down exactly what those things are. Um, but, but for those types of hunters and the reason that we started on this tangent, um, yes, there's going to be times where the app says, you know, there's going to be high amounts of movement this day and they're going to be in a normal pattern. And if you're hunting this public land for the first time, this is where you should focus yourself. Yeah. What I can't account for is, has someone else been hunting that? Someone just killed a deer there yesterday and got that area out and they're in sure. there until 11 a.m. Yeah. 11 p.m. with a flashlight. Um, I, I, those things I can't predict for, not right now. And um, I can't help those hunters who see that. But what I think a hunter will find with their app, and I, I'll tell you that I found it last year, was I catalog my hunts on my cell phone. And I, when I get to the truck, I say, here's what I saw on this day. Here's the amount I saw. This is where I saw them. This is what they were doing. And over a season, I couple that with how my app predicted, and it's right in there at that 65 to 70% accuracy. So I might have had three days where I saw nothing, and the app thought that the deer woods were going to be on fire. Sure, that's going to happen, no question. But I think when you look at it over the season and you take an average, you're going to find that, again, it's accurate. And the reason I know that it's accurate is, is because as I ingest new GPS data before I ever use it to train my model, I test my model against it. And we, as we get new stuff, we're finding that we're in the 65 to 67% accuracy. So uh, that, that, that for me is proof positive that we have got a good understanding of how the general deer moves, not the specific deer. So, you know, I'm not going to be able to win over some people and that's fine. Um, But I think for the majority of people who are serious about being in the woods or at least, uh, um, going to give the app a spin, I think they will find after a while that it's going to help them more than it's going to hurt them. So, uh, Chase, what I, what I hear is uh, <clears throat> uh, this app may be a little bit better at predicting deer movement than me. Uh, slightly. Slightly <laughs> better. Uh, I, I do have a question, though, kind of as I was listening to you talk and we were talking about factors and it doesn't factor in how that person enters the woods, were they making a lot of noise, were they playing the wind, 
Now, will anything in this app kind of say you may want to enter in the woods this direction because of how the wind is or anything absolutely. like that? No, okay. absolutely. Um, when we talk about the Artemis scenario, we're hoping that'll be in there next year, but it will tell you, hey, here's your path. Here's a good path to get in on. Um, one of the things we're going to have to do, though, is get a lawyer to look at that and say, you know, what is a person <laughs> going to have to check? Because they're going to say, you know, I took your path and then I rolled my ankle. I want $20,000. Oh, that's um, right. So, yeah. So, you know, we, we got to get past, that's a hurdle that we need to get past, but certainly we are going to be able to say, here is where we suspect this is happening. Here's the predominant wind for this area. And here's the wind on the day that you want to go in there. You should approach this place with the wind in your face. Um, right. You know, not with the wind at your back. It's not going to help you if the wind is at your back um, or from the side. So, yeah, that's, you know, you just brought up a point and it's something that we're wrestling through right now. And unfortunately, we're probably going to have to pay some lawyer a bunch of money to make sure that we do this right, which you know, I guess is the right way to do things because, you know, you don't want to send some guy off of a cliff or something like that. <laughs> right. Um, not saying we're going to do that. Uh, I'm just saying. I got so carpal tunnel uh, scrolling through your app one time. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. Well, I'm happy I am... on myself when I got surprised about a result. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I imagine you're going to have a lot of new hunters wanting to use this yeah. app. Yeah, I would. And maybe some guys that have been hunting for a long time to just compare it to their theories. You know what I mean? Be like, they could look at it and go, well, I never hunt there on this day or this moon or whatever. But the app says, oh, this is a great time to hunt there that they'll be able to compare it to. OK, maybe I was wrong on this theory all along and I should have been doing this. Yeah. And there's a couple of ways that this scenario plays out. And one of the things that I talk about, you know, with my co-owners and my co- of the company is. We're, we're shortening, we're, 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 we're making the amount of bandwidth that you can take in as a hunter, we're increasing it. So what I mean by bandwidth is the amount of meaningful information that you can take in. I don't know how your guys' progression hunting was, but I can tell you like for mine growing up, it was wait till the scrapes are on the field. When the scrapes are on the field, leave the field alone, wait for a night where it's going to be cold, look over the field with a rifle. When a buck comes out to work one of those scrapes, shoot it. That was, and that's a pretty, for me growing up in North Dakota, that was a pretty successful, you know, with a 30 odd six sitting, you know, 150 yards away, I got, I put some deer on the ground that way. And that's great. And it works. But when I got out to the East coast and I started hunting public land, it was a rude awakening for me. And this was about 10 years ago. And it, there was a learning, a learning curve that had to take place. And part of that learning curve was understanding now becoming a woodsman and understanding how the deer use the woods and then applying that knowledge. And for me, that was like two years. It took like two years of sitting and seeing nothing and like throwing my hands in the air and say, what am I doing wrong here? And then going online and doing research and following hunters who you know have a style that is favorable and ingesting that information. What we're trying to do is we're trying to widen that bandwidth so we can provide some of that input that they're gonna find online eventually, or they're gonna get from their grandfather or their uncle. We're going to provide it to them right away so they can start making informed decisions. And then that can, that can impact how they approach the deer woods and they could be successful quicker. So you have less people quitting because as I said before, I want more public lands. I want more people hunting. And the way we do that is we help people become successful. Now, of course, there's always going to be other guys out there. It's like, these are my bucks or this is my public land. I've run into those guys. Um, and I know those guys I'm friends with some of them. Like, Hey, that's my buck, you know? Um, and they, they may not like it, but it, it, 
it's a good thing when everyone's involved and we get more public lands when everyone is involved. And then to your point about the experienced hunter, I see it going two ways for the experienced hunter. Someone like yourself who's been out there in the woods and spent a lot of time is going to be able to look at what the app is saying and it'll either confirm or cause them to reevaluate some of the presuppositions. And then they can kind of in a more scientific way without, you know, having to fail over and over again, examine how they might be doing things wrong or reinforce the way that they're doing things right. And again, widen their bandwidth to learn. They're able to learn more quicker. And then they apply that in the woods and then they can start recalibrating that bias to something that's more productive based on how deer are and not just how we think they are. So, you know, it's going to play out for people, I think, in that way. And it's going to, it's ultimately, I think it's going to be good for the junior hunter all the way up to the very experienced hunter. And then the second way, as I said, it's going to be good for the experienced hunter is there are tracts of land that are like 10,000 acres and you don't have the time. If you've got three public hunting properties near you, like I hunt one out in Western Maryland called Green Ridge State Forest. It's a massive, hilly, you know, unforgiving to the novice hunter. Like you would never want to start a new guy hunting there, you know, because it's so foreboding and it's so, there's so much elevation change. There's a buck per square mile is so low. It's just a very difficult place to go. And it's not unlikely to sit five or six times and only see a few doe. And that's it. Like you've never seen a buck. So what it's going to do for those guys is you might have three 10,000 plus acres of public property that you want to look at. So you've got 30,000 acres. Artemis is going to be able to say in the off season, you should go scout these areas. And then during the season, here's where we think there could be bedding. It's on you to investigate or hunt these areas. And if you already thought that or knew that about it, well, then you've got a second piece backing you up and reinforcing what you, you are doing on that property. Or it's allowing things you to see things that you may have overlooked, which happens a lot. And it happens with me all the time. You just overlook something and then you, you know, <coughs> someone else points it out to you. Or in my case, the application starts pointing it out to me. And I'm like, oh, man, how did I not see this? Because then you get in there and you're just like, there's a trail here worn into the ground. And I just thought it was too close to the road. Or I thought it was too close to the parking lot. Or I thought it was, you know, this or that. Like your presuppositions, you know we're there to introduce that little bit of chaos to the hunter to get them to reevaluate things so that they grow and they learn in the woods. Hmm. So I'm, I'm a little curious, Bill. We talked a lot about your product. I want to share something that I think maybe people are thinking about. Maybe they will after I say this, but that is you've been a hunter for a long time and you've done the hard work that this app is doing. Why don't you tell everybody a little bit about your, your hunting background, you know, Spartan Forge aside. I mean, that's obviously, you know, how you came to be, it influenced how you, how you came to, to work on this, uh, product, this, this software, but dude, you yourself, how did you cut your teeth? Um, how would you describe yourself as a deer hunter? Yeah. So, I mean, so when I did it, when I was younger, it was a friend of my mother's who would take me out because we had like a, 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 you know, some pretty good public land near us. I just went out with him a few times and it kind of got me into it. But then, you know, I started reading the books like I talked about before. Like I picked up a char- that Charlie Alzheimer book and started to like, un- but it was all based around gun hunting. And it was basically just like a seasonal thing in North Dakota. Like gun season came in 
and I would hunt like that first weekend with this guy, or I'd go out with someone, a friend of mine and their dad or something like that. My father passed when I was very young. So I didn't have anyone there to show me, which is like another, which is like another point here that, you know, for those kids out there who maybe don't have a dad who hunts or is interested in hunting, but they are, this app will again, help them with that. I was that kid. So as I was growing up, um, it was like a seasonal thing. It happened every once in a while. It wasn't very often, nothing I was super, um, into. And then after I joined the military, uh, I, my brother-in-law at the time was a big hunter and he had gotten me into just shooting the bow and like bow hunting. And the first time I loosed an arrow on a buck, you know, this would have been, I don't know, 2000 and maybe 2007 or something like maybe about that. That's the first time I bow hunted. Um, I was hooked and I missed totally. And I was shaking. And, you know, for me, what it did for me was, and this kind of gets off into a weird realm, but it, it's a, uh, this is a whole nother story, right? But there's a sense of satisfaction that you get in the U S military when you've helped somebody get after a bad guy and either take that dude out or put him in Guantanamo. Like you get a, a large amount of pride from that, especially when you're participating in those combat operations on the ground or you're rolling outside of the wire and you're going after someone and you're participating in the intelligence that was gathered for that mission, or you are literally there helping those guys out while the mission is taking place. You get that heightened heart rate, you know, your, 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 your heart's in your throat, you're excited there's deep meaning there. You feel like you're doing something good for everyone that's universally, you know, appreciated. And you are, you know, getting rid of one less bad guy. And the only way that I've been able to get something that mirrors that feeling is bow hunting. So when I started bow hunting early on in North Dakota, it was pretty easy because where my mother was living at the time was a, it was a large farm and there were deer on there. And for me, all I needed to do was look for inside corners and I'd hunt inside corners. And because there was no pressure, I was able to take some good bucks early and I got stationed in Hawaii. And then I did some like hog hunting, but I didn't do a ton of whitetail hunting. I do it when I come home and then tours to Afghanistan. I got very serious and probably like 2011, I got to start bow hunting a lot again. And uh, that's when I start, lived on the East coast and it was just like murder for my ego. I mean, just bow hunting in on public property in Maryland was one of the most humbling experiences of my life. Thank God no one was there to see it because, you know, like I said, for the first two years, I was not seeing a lot of deer and I was applying a lot of those lessons that I'd learned growing up or like the lessons I'd learned on the farm uh, that had no applicability there because it just, it was a totally different game. It was really understanding the, if I wanted to be successful there and killed some of the deer that I have killed there, you know, I had to really humble myself. I had to understand that I knew nothing about how any of this worked. I basically had to restart, reset myself and start from zero. And that came down to, you know, reading more books, understanding the biology, understanding what the sign means. Um, and, and really uh, in, the, in the, deer, the deer woods for me, it was understanding that I need to think about this like my life is on the line. So if I'm planning for where, a, if I'm a buck, where am I going to be in these woods where I'm not going to be seen during daylight hours and then kind of flip that. And then also, and we talk, kind of talked about it earlier was now, how do I get into those deer woods? Like my life depends on it. And I, I kind of, again, I made this joke yesterday with Garrett, but I think it applies. 
when I'm hanging a stand these days, I'm hanging that stand like my life depends on it. And that sounds really um, cliche, but if people go into, if, if people try to approach the situation like their life depends on it and they're quiet and they choose their path and they, and they recommend, and they, and they look at the wind and they, and they uh, can approach it with that amount of seriousness. And when they're getting up the tree, they're being as quiet as possible. They're considering where bedded deer might be and seeing them. So that's how they're picking their tree. They're not just walking into the woods and, and shimming up a tree and wondering why they're not seeing anything. They're approaching it. Not, you know, I'm not telling them to act like James Bond and, you know, sneak in there quietly, but approach it with the appropriate amount of seriousness, like their life depends on it because they're hunting an animal whose life depends on it. So you can't expect to be successful in that public land scenario unless you're coming to the table with that mindset, with that ethos. And for me, <clears throat> that started for me around like 2013. So I've been hunting like that for seven years now. And during those seven years, I put some pretty good deer on the wall and the ton of doe. And, and, uh, and it's really changed me as a hunter because now I enjoy putting people in the woods or helping other people in the woods more than I enjoy doing it for myself. Um, there's a scenario where a coworker had a really good plot of land in Virginia. This was like two years ago. And he would come to me and show me like, Oh, I just got access to the land. You know, it's awesome. It's like 160 acres on a huge hillside in Virginia. And he's like, I'm just not seeing anything. And he's like, show me where he was on the property and blah, 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 blah. And I kind of just started saying, Hey, you know, let me show you how I walk into the woods. So I'd like take him outside and be like, <laughs> show him like a psycho, how I, when I'm hunting bedding, especially I'll move leaves aside with my foot before I hit the ground and how slow I'm walking and how early I'll get in. You know, if I'm trying to be up in the tree by two 30, I'm starting my walking at 1230, you know, PM and showing him these things and then showing him, all right, now here's where, how I think you should watch this property or hunt this property. You know, he'd come in that following Monday and said, Oh, I hunted this weekend. And I saw this like 160 inch buck I'd never seen before. And I threw an arrow right over his back, but it was like the most exhilarating thing I've ever done. And like, that's kind of what the stage I'm at with bow hunting right now is I love bow hunting myself and I'm going to keep doing it, but man, I really enjoy helping other people do it and, and become successful in the woods. And, and that's kind of where I am right now. And that's been my evolution. So, but it all stumbled, it all started with, it's the same with the military. It was the same with the military for me. I was 17 when I joined, when I signed on the line. When I got there, I thought I had the world figured out and they quickly told me I had none of it figured out. And if I thought I had it figured out, I was an idiot. And then they showed <laughs> me why that was the case. Right. And, and that's what the public land deer woods did for me. I thought I knew how, what hunting was until I started hunting public land in Maryland. And it quickly showed, it quickly made me make two decisions. A, do I really want to be a hunter? <laughs> because it would have been an easy decision to say I'm wasting large amounts of time right now and I'm not being successful. And then B, am I will now I've made the decision I want to be a hunter. Am I willing to do the things necessary to be successful? And that is what I'm trying to automate with this with my company is that in the military we call it an intelligence preparation of the battlefield or IPE intelligence preparation of the environment. And that is identifying every variable in your equation as it concerns every piece of information about your objective that is available, accounting for all of those pieces seeing where your gaps in intelligence are, illustrating them, doing what you can to overcome them, and then understanding the enemy. In this case, it's not an enemy, it's your pursuit, it's a white-tailed deer. What are their strengths, and then how do I use them against them? 
So the whole goal of my company now, and it's kind of like an automated way of how I love to help people is I want to scale it and help people online is let's identify every variable we can in the equation, account for them, recognize the patterns associated with them, help them make sense to a hunter and then get them in the field and get them successful. And if I can do that, then I hang my hat and I'm a happy guy. He sold me, man. <laughs> I, I, I think I think that's the natural progression, though, of a lot of people. I mean, like, you don't even have to get that far along before you start feeling that way. At least I didn't. You know, I spent right. an hour today talking to my best friend, Derek, who is really cutting his teeth in the whitetail woods. He's really putting in the sweat equity. He's doing his thing the way he's supposed to. We spent an hour on the phone today talking about turkeys. It's not even turkey season. I, I, I'm bit by the turkey right. bug. but. I kept yeah. telling him, man, like, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And, he, and and you can tell it's all going over his head, but he's excited about the prospect of going out there. And that excitement about going and sharing something that I can help him get into that he's not currently into, dude, that just, like, fires me up to no end. So I can totally relate with you there. Yeah, it, it's, that's exactly right. And I enjoy doing that with people. And it's also something I enjoy in the military. Because, <clears throat> like, being in the military for 20 years, I get these new guys that are coming in that you're working with. And it's one of those things where you kind of feed off their energy and it allows you <clears throat> to remain passionate about something. And it also understand, it gives you the genesis of why you were passionate about this in the first place. Because I know for myself, being an engineer minded person and a results oriented person, it became very easy for me to get down on myself, especially when I wasn't seeing what I thought I should be seeing in the woods, commensurate with the amount of time I was spending planning these things. So it's easy to say I quit or I don't want to do this or this is stupid or it's going to wait for rifle season or, you know, whatever excuse you want to cook up to rationalize why you're not being successful. But then when you get with someone who has never put a big gear on the wall and they come to your place and they're like, oh, man, these books, like, tell me the stories and how did this happen? And you start regenerating and rekindling like, hey, this is why I'm in it. This is why I'm doing it. That happens for me in the military. It happens with me in hunting and and recreating all of that and helping people negotiate the deer woods negotiate life or negotiate the military for me is like that rekindling flame that that reminds you why you, you we do these things and why you have this podcast why we talk about these things why we love doing them and it brings the next generation in and it keeps this thing you know going which i think is incumbent on all of us as hunters is to you know we talked about that guy before he's like that's my buck or this is my hunting property you know, a kid, that, that 18 year old might come along and say, Hey, you know, I don't have property or I don't have access to public land or, you know, pick that kid up with your truck, take them hunting, show them how to do things. Don't be the guy who says, well, I've only got this 60 acres here and you can't you know, do that. You know, show people hunting because people are too often in love with the immediate, the, what is happening immediately in front of them, like the short game. And the short game for that person is I want to put a big buck on the wall, but what they're not worrying about is the long game. And the long game is, Will there be a place for me to go to hunt if I'm not getting other people interested in this sport and interested in what we are doing out here as outdoorsmen and women? Uh, and that's the long game. So I think you're right. It is the natural progression, and it's what we're doing now, and it's what's making us uh, you know, have a sense of accomplishment is showing other people how to do this and making sure that the next generation is doing it um, better than we are. And if we do that, then that's somebody who's playing the long game. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely, dude. I'm totally with you, man. Totally with you. Well, dude, I have taken up a we have taken up a bunch of your time. Chase, I, I am 
all out of questions, I think, for this episode, but I can envision a world where we would have uh, him back on to, to talk about uh, rollout and a bunch of other things. Uh, did I leave anything on the table that you wanted to discuss, Chase? The only thing that I have a question on currently, and I was, I've been thinking about, is for your app. Will I be able to put my trail cam data into your app? Mm. Like, will there is will there be a spot for that? Like, if I'm seeing a buck in a daylight a bunch or bucks in daylight a bunch in a certain area on my trail cam, would that be a part of the app or no? In the future, it will be. So right now, okay. it's not, but it is on our that is on our um, uh, production timeline. <clears throat> so what we envision is a situation where you'll either be able to through a cell phone camera. They'll automatically populate on the common operating picture, and they will feed our artificial intelligence and tether the prediction more to your property. And uh, but but also what we, what we envision doing is user stripping that data. In other words, taking all of the meaningful parts that that ties that data to you away from it, and then using it to educate the larger machine learning and prediction system nationwide if that makes sense. So kind of like how I talked about before where everybody gets a Google phone with a Google Maps app and then that feeds traffic and gives awareness for everyone who's trying to negotiate the highways. <clears throat> It'll be the same thing where as you're uploading stuff, we will give you that analysis that will bolster the way that our machine learning and artificial intelligence does prediction for your land. But then we'll be able to generalize that and make and make that prediction for everyone. So I'm not saying we're going to share your data. That's not what's going to happen. But as maybe your camera starts picking up seeking and chasing behavior, our app will, will, will notice those things. And then it will start saying maybe when someone's looking at the common operating picture next year, that there will be heat mapping that will say uh, in this area of, of central Florida, seeking and chasing behavior has been noted. It's been seen. It's happening. So it won't tie it to your property. What again? The goal here is to help people who don't have a ton of money to put a ton of cameras in the deer woods or sell cameras in the deer woods, but they can benefit from the knowledge that those sensors are are aggregating and generating. So when you do have that 19-year-old guy who doesn't have a bunch of cameras, what he'll get from the app is, in your county, seeking and chasing behavior has been noted, and we predict tomorrow will be high movement and normal pattern. Tomorrow afternoon is a day to be in the deer woods. You, you see what I'm saying there? So it, yep. it's going to make the artificial intelligence uh, more more uh, regionalized and less generalized, if that makes sense. That's awesome, man. Yes, it does. <laughs> and that is on a roadmap. That's been on the roadmap. It'll, it, and I, I see that as being something probably the latter part of next year that we'll be introducing. I should say – the common operating picture, we're a small company and we are dynamic and we're moving. You know, we're going to be pushing a lot of versions. Since we've pushed the first one out, we've pushed two more versions and we're going to push a third one tomorrow or the next day. So we're going to constantly be adding features. And our goal here is to get as many people participating in this as possible. So we're trying to make that price point as low as possible um, to the point where, you know, the value of a machine learning or an artificial intelligence company isn't generally isn't necessarily your revenue it's the amount of data you're sitting on so the more data that we can sit on and the more accurate our models become the more value there is in the company if that makes sense mm -hmm. i wish i could talk about it but we've got you know there's one of those things <laughs> where 
you don't want to let it all out right away. Um, oh, but you also come don't want to oversell man. yourself. But you no don't want to let it out. <laughs> You've got so many things planned. And uh, there are those big companies out there, right? You could probably do this a lot quicker than we can because sure. they've got a lot of money sitting around. Um, our goal is to compete with them and, uh, you know, make sure that they're staying honest to the hunters we want to be. And uh, I think it'll be a good thing for everyone involved. Well, dude, we have taken up a bunch of your time, an hour and a half, in fact, and uh, I, I can envision a world where we're going to get you back on, like I said before, and, and talk hunting, maybe even get you down here to deer hunt at some point in time. I think that would be really cool. Um, I love that. But until that time, where can people find everything Spartan Forge? So they can go, our website is www.spartanforge, S-P-A-R-T-A-N-F-O-R-G-E, dot A-I standing for artificial intelligence and on there there's links to our uh, facebook and our instagram and we will be pushing out a couple articles here that kind of summarizes I, we didn't talk about it a bunch here but the military tie into what we're doing and myself being i'm still an active duty military officer i retire in april um kind of the military mindset that we applied to building these models they'll be able to learn that and understand that there and um you know please get on social media give us a like or a share um and uh we hope to see you guys come uh deer opener that's it man that's it all right guys go check out spartan forge i I have a feeling you're going to like what they've got coming out but most importantly no matter what you do get outside and enjoy the great outdoors